Welcome to episode 34 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Pooja Gopal, resident at University of Illinois at Chicago and former RSA Education Committee Chair, speaks with Dr. Tony Budsty, Assistant Professor at University of Texas Southwestern, and Dr. Linda Reagan, Residency Director at Johns Hopkins. Today, Drs. Gopal Budsty and Reagan discuss evidence-based medicine and how to use it in your practice. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of AEM RSA Podcast. I'm Pooja Gopal, a current resident at the University of Illinois of Chicago and current vice chair of the AEM Education Committee. Thank you for joining us for this next episode. I'm really excited to be introducing these two very special individuals, Dr. Reagan and Dr. Boosty. Dr. Reagan, Dr. Boosty, hello. How are you? We're good. Thank you. We're very happy to be here. Thank you. So can you start off by telling us a little about your backgrounds? Sure. So I'm currently the residency director at Johns Hopkins for the emergency medicine residency program and the vice chair for education for the department as well. And was Tony's uh, residency director for a number of, for four years. And I'll let him fill you in on him. He's a lot more interesting than me. My name is uh, Dr. Busti. I'm currently an assistant professor at the University of Texas Southwestern uh, in Dallas at the, at the College of Medicine and obviously one of the uh, faculty in the residency program there and, and practice at Parkland. I also wear a couple other hats and then I also own uh, a medical education company and work that on the side, and which is why I have a part-time faculty position. So. Wonderful. So just for our listeners, so you know, this is being recorded directly at Fort Lauderdale at the Court Academic Assembly 2017. One of the sessions that Dr. Buste and Dr. Reagan are doing is titled EBM Education, the real reason your residents are still not competent in evidence-based practice. Can you tell us a little about how you perceive evidence-based medicine and how it's different from EBHC and EBP? And we can start off by what these acronyms all actually mean. Yes, it's actually quite confusing if you sit there and look at all of the different evidence-based terminology that's out there. And I think sometimes that actually creates confusion because people utilize the terms and, and, and mix them and actually they're mean different things. So uh, EBM, or evidence-based medicine, is a paradigm and an approach to how we answer and implement a clinical decision about a specific scenario with a specific patient. And it's a process. And the way that that process is defined is going through what we call the five A's. You have to ask a question. You have to acquire the information. You have to do a critical appraisal of that. And then you have to apply it and then you analyze the results of that. For that specific scenario, that is a little bit different than evidence-based health care, which is the EBHC. And where that comes into play is think about the healthcare system at large. There are pieces of that system that they all have to kind of work together for the system as a whole to function appropriately. And so when people have evidence-based practices, EBP, right, the underlying assumption at that point is that healthcare providers, 
physicians, pharmacists, you know, nurses, everybody in the system, right, healthcare team, they are implementing their practices in an evidence-based manner. And so when we collectively do that together, along with implementing the principles and the approach of EBM, you then begin to create a system that is evidence-based in the way we deliver healthcare. And so that terminology is important to differentiate because they actually do mean different things. And we need to understand our individual roles as part of that overall system. And that's where individual providers, you know, where we desire for them to be is to become evidence-based practitioners or evidence-based experts. And those are individuals on, an in, on a day-to-day basis who are making these decisions for their patients, then creating an atmosphere that their practice is evidence-based, that when we all do that together, the system as a whole becomes evidence-based. I think we'd all like to assume that that's what the system is now. And I think as Tony and I and others have spoken, it's um, unfortunately apparent that a lot of the ways that evidence-based medicine, this whole paradigm of teaching, has been implemented within graduate medical education sort of has taken evidence-based medicine and put it into like a, a course that you have or an hour in conference where you discuss an article, a resident asks this theoretical question, and everyone decides that, you know, for our, quote, patients, we would do this. Yes, we think this is applicable. And then we all leave, and then we go to take care of our patients, and we don't necessarily bring that evidence-based medicine with us. And so I think that it's really trying to engage people to bridge that gap where, you know, you can sit in a room, that's great, to learn how to critically appraise a topic and to learn how to ask the right question to get the right answer. But if you don't bring that with you when you go back to your patients and see them, then that's not the way the system is supposed to be working. And that doesn't give you the best outcome for your patient, which is, you know, the evidence-based, the best evidence for that particular patient at that particular moment in the system you're working in with whatever resources you have available and with whatever knowledge you bring to the table. So, you know, it's, it's integrating all of those pieces together to make a person who can be fluid in their decision-making based on the scenario that's in front of them. Oh, that's great advice. So in order to, to have an evidence-based practice, what should then a physician ideally look like or function as? Well, I mean, again, if you break down the terminology there, evidence-based practitioner or an evidence-based expert. There's a slight difference. One is the practitioner is somebody who can read and interpret evidence-based summaries. They, they basically understand the process of gathering the evidence, but they're relying on sort of summaries and information and applying that. But, but they're doing it appropriately in the context of the evidence. The expert, evidence-based expert, is somebody who does that independently, does the critical appraisal, finds the information, applies it, analyzes their own decisions in a day-to-day process of taking care of their patients. So the, if you break down that word, if you have an evidence-based practitioner, there's an underlying assumption then that the clinician who's making those decisions should be able to convey or articulate, reflect the evidence behind that, right? That would be the assumption. And I believe that if you're going to make a decision, you should know why you're making that decision. And if your colleague asks you, you should be able to articulate that in the proper context of the evidence. If your patient or the patient's family asks you something, because you're supposed to be making decisions that are oriented to the patient, that's part of the process of evidence-based medicine, 
then you should be able to articulate to them the evidence in a way that they can understand it, right? And so when you're doing that on a day-to-day basis with all the decisions that you're making, that's what a evidence-based practitioner, in my opinion, probably should look like. And when you do that, then your practice as a provider then should be evidence-based. I'll just add that I think this is always a difficult topic, and Tony and I have struggled quite a bit with having conversations about telling people that they maybe don't know why they're doing what they're doing, which, you know, we don't want to offend anyone. And, and I'll say that when Tony came into residency, I think Tony, sh- we should make sure people know, Tony is very accomplished in that he initially started as a nurse and then became a professor of pharmacy and has a lot of knowledge that a lot of other practicing physicians don't have. And when Tony started teaching in my residency program, people were just like, is Tony piloting something, like some new thing? And, and Tony was just being Tony, which is that he always understood from all the various experiences he had in the past that you need to know why. And I think he sometimes had an easier time understanding why because of his understanding of a lot of the pathophysiology behind it and the pharmacology behind it and stuff that, you know, physicians aren't learning necessarily in medical school, but maybe someone who has a degree in pharmacy does understand, right? And so it's always this fine line of making sure that, you know, we're very clear that we're not telling people they're doing anything wrong, right? They're doing what the system does. And the system makes a guideline and says, you know, you must give drug X. And residents says, oh, well, I should give drug X, drug X because the guideline says I should do it. And that might be right, but if they don't necessarily understand what that guideline is based on, or even that that guideline is based on evidence that isn't so great, and even though they're going to do it because it's what the guideline says, they still understand that it maybe isn't based on great evidence, or that it's only applicable to certain patients. And if you can't give that drug that the guideline says to give, it's still probably okay because the effect isn't important in the first 24 hours anyway. And I think it's those little nuanced pieces, like I think, as I said before, that allow people to really be nuanced in how they make decisions. And I think that, unfortunately, the the system has become so overwhelming in how much people need to learn that the ability to learn why about all of these pieces is getting lost a little bit. And I think that's putting our providers at a disadvantage in being able to make truly evidence-based decisions and to understand that they are indeed making evidence-based decisions. I think if you asked my residents if they make evidence-based decisions, they would all say yes. Just as I said yes before I realized I wasn't really, or that I may be making the right decision, but I didn't really understand why I was making it. And I think that's, that's the piece I think we want people to understand is that, you know, we're not saying you're doing anything wrong. We're just saying maybe we've all been doing something that's not ideal. And let's think about how to make it improved in a way that will get people to be able to say, I know what to do and I know why to do it. And I know when not to do it as well, which is sometimes just as important. Yeah, I mean, I believe it even adds an element of it's intimidating to think about that. You mean I've gone through all this training and I've come to this point in my career that I still don't know important pieces of information that I probably really should know and should be able to articulate and convey to other people, my colleagues and my patients? And that's hard. And then, especially when you realize that you're tired, and how am I going then to find all that information that I potentially lack? And I think that that makes it, in some respects, seem overwhelming. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to train the residents and the students? And if I myself don't also know how to do that, and if I wasn't trained in that model, then how do we do that? That's hard. 
Those were some really good points. Which kind of brings us to our next question. What solutions are you suggesting to educators and learners to help then achieve this goal of practicing evidence-based practice, EBP? This is not going to be an easy task, okay, because of the amount of information that we have to not only filter through but absorb. Uh, At some level, I think we're going to need a curriculum, at least a core set of curriculum that helps to integrate core medical knowledge, things that we kind of know and are well-established, core evidence behind some of those areas of core knowledge, and then we have to bring them together in a manner, purposefully integrating them in multiple settings in a way that is concise, easy to understand, clinically relevant, and also adjusted to the level of training of the learner while also factoring in the patient's preferences and the system's access to resources. That seems very difficult, but we've got to start somewhere. And so one of the things that we're proposing is a a new kind of approach or paradigm, if you will, within the model of medical education that brings in and incorporates the principles of evidence-based medicine and the value of what it brought to healthcare, because it's very important. But now we want to take a f- one step further of being very purposeful in the integration of that evidence in a way that is meaningful to the provider as well as to the patient. And so we're proposing a model called EBME. So we're throwing another evidence-based term out there. But again, to build into the system of evidence-based health care, we have to be able to integrate these parts of the puzzle. And one of the parts of that puzzle is the educational component. And where we as educators, as well as the learner, is being very purposeful at integrating these, whether it's in conference, whether it's in a didactic lecture, whether it's in a journal club, whether, and, and more importantly, at the bedside, when you're actually making these decisions. And so EBME, this curriculum that we're proposing. It's going to take time to develop. It's undergoing development right now. It's something that I've been working on for a number of years already. But the idea is to create a tool that would then help educators as well as learners have access to something, a starting point, that they can go to that provides information in a way that makes it digestible and they can understand it. But then they can turn around and either teach it to somebody else appropriately in the context of the evidence or the learner has a place to go also so that the information is consistent, so that what's being taught to them and what they're reading are coming together or should at some level. Now, there's going to be some variations. There's going to be interpretation differences when you start getting into higher-level evidence-based medicine decisions, right? But there's a core, and we believe that's a starting point. And we got to start somewhere, and that's one of the reasons why we're here. I think it's important to just maybe be concrete for a second, because we're being pretty theoretical. A number of years ago, we did uh, a journal club on the use of diphenhydramine and whether or not it decreased akathisia in patients who were getting metoclopramide for migraine. And after that journal club, one of our pharmacists was there, and they created this new headache pathway that had pre-populated medications. And, you know, it was 10 of Reglan and or metoclopramide and 20 milligrams of diphenhydramine. And that pathway sort of went away after a while. We changed computer systems. And I worked with a resident, I don't know, 
three or four years ago. And the patient had an allergy to metoclopramide and had come in with a migraine. And the resident had treated them with diphenhydramine. And I said, well, why'd you do that? And they said, well, you know, because it's in the treatment pathway for headaches. And the resident really had no idea that the utility of the diphenhydramine in this pathway was as a preventative uh, medication for side effects from the medication the resident hadn't administered. And, you know, I think it's those pieces where you realize that people sort of lump these things together and they learn them as it is easier to do in these abstract, not related to anything, you know, these are the meds you use for this disease. If you open the the order set for this, it has all these medications. And people start to develop these easy shortcuts for answering um, the questions of, well, what are you going to do? And when you actually ask people, why are you doing that? The variability in who actually can answer why correctly is staggering in a way that's sort of scary sometimes. And so this, you know, patient, not that maybe a little sleep wasn't going to help their headache, right? But it wasn't the treatment for her disease process. And I think it's, it's those moments where you really realize that the way we're teaching, it's not the learner's fault that they didn't know that maybe, right? It's that we had this pathway and there was no reference in the pathway. And, you know, it had been five years since the journal club and this resident hadn't really been there during it. And we never go back and continually say, okay, migraine headache patient, tell me what are the treatments? What do you know it's based on? Is there evidence for that or not? Because sometimes we do things and there's no evidence, right? Or it's not good evidence. And, and just r- make sure that when people are choosing treatment modalities, that they know whether or not it's based on group think or whether or not it's based on any evidence. And if it is based on evidence, is it good evidence or not? You know, you don't have to be able to reference the article and say when it was published or know how many people were in it, but is it, is it a good size, good quality? And, and if not, then maybe we still do it because it's the only thing we have to offer, but at least we know that it's not based on anything great. Yeah, and I think that sometimes as educators and maybe even us as learners at some level, we have assumptions. We assume that if I've gone through X amount of training or I passed certain tests, then I must know what I need to know. And a lot of times you don't know what you don't know until somebody to some degree exposes it in a safe environment, right? And I think that that's where knowledge assessment by the educator of the learner is involved in figuring out where are some of those gaps to, and not assume that just because somebody's taking care of somebody with a migraine that they know how to treat it. But ask them specifically, do you know what the options are and why are you using some of those? And I think that scenario that Dr. Regan just presented is a very good one, actually, because it highlights an assumption that we all have. And it, that actually happened to me. And that's one of the reasons that this process of EBME really became something real and tangible that now I can articulate is because I, I think people were assuming because I was a good student or a good resident that I just knew stuff. And it didn't occur to me that I didn't know it until when I was asked on rounds in front of everybody a question that I should have known because of my training, and I didn't. And when I did a, a, you know, a self-reflection on that process of why is it, how is it possible that I got through all of my training And I don't know the answer to that question, which I really should know, to be honest. It's hard to swallow that and say it, but I really should have known that. And and I think that's where it goes back to 
what was what was the information I was being trained? What was the expectation that I was being held to? And I think that my my own professors they weren't doing anything wrong. It didn't, it's not like they didn't want to not teach me. I think that we just sort of get into this routine of taking care of patients. We're busy and things are happening. There's interruptions. But we have to be very purposeful with education. We have to not assume that everybody has all of the gaps filled. And that's where the educator needs to be purposeful in their integration of the evidence and bringing this stuff to the bedside and, and making it come alive. We're basically modeling how to do it. And think about this. If you get trained under a model that does that where collectively educators are doing this consistently across your rotations and classes, you start to really integrate knowledge, right? But also what happens to you is you begin to understand why you're doing what you're doing, right? And you can then articulate that back to somebody else if they do, in, in fact, ask you, patient or colleague. But then secondly, if you go off and become an educator or a preceptor or somebody that helps to train the next generation, you're more likely going to propagate the same methodology in which you were trained. So if we continue to do this process of training people, either whether it's to pass tests or assuming that people know things and they don't, we're not going to cause a shift to where we create a generation of people in a system that then have this evidence-based mindset where they're applying it and integrating it with everything they do. Any other final tips for learners and educators out there in terms of how they can become better at practicing evidence-based medicine? I'd say for the educators, and this can go also for residents who are working with medical students, right? When you're talking through, in particular, you know, interventions, probably one of the easier things to do this with, is to just ask them why. Do you know why that's the treatment for this? That's great that you're going to do that. Why are you going to do that? And, you know, I think as a residency director, this is one of my biggest pet peeves because residents can do the right thing and have absolutely no idea why they've done it. And, you know, we discover residents with huge knowledge gaps who you don't notice there's a gap until, you know, second year of residency when someone like the medical student says to them, oh, well, why do we do that? And they can't answer it. And, you know, the attending or the senior resident watches them fumble through some crazy answer or, you know, hopefully they say, I have no idea. But it's, you know, as an educator, I would say, ask why. And, and at the beginning of your shift, preface, I'm going to ask you why all shift. And it's not because I don't trust you or don't believe you. But if I don't ever ask you why, I'm never going to find anything to teach you. And as students, I would say, expect to get asked why. Because unless someone asks you why, and you can't answer the question, maybe you're never going to know what to go look up. And I think that if we set that as the, as the standard for what the emergency department looks like on a daily basis, that we all expect we're going to constantly be questioning why, 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 that becomes safe, right? Right now, you know, people think like, oh, I'm getting pimped. And that's not the goal. And I think, you know, I had a resident the other day email me and say, your teaching style was great. And I thought, I thought I tortured her the whole shift. Because I kept asking her, why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And, you know, it was a one-on-one -on -one teaching shift where I literally never left her side and asked her why like 45 times. And she thought it was great because she actually realized what she didn't know. And so did I, right? And, and while that could be scary, if you start at the beginning by making sure people know 
My goal is to help us together find out what you don't know and along the way maybe also what I don't know and we'll figure it out together. That becomes a whole different playing field than, oh, well, they ordered the right test, therefore they must know what they're doing. Or they must know why that's the right test or they must know why that's the right drug. And so I would say be questioning. And as a group, we should decide that we're doing that because if one person decides it's the right thing and the other person doesn't agree with it or doesn't know why, then that's where this why are they questioning me feeling comes up, right? And it makes it less safe. So I think if we all decide together, we're going to question together and learn together, then that makes this all the safe environment in which we can grow together to have the best outcomes for the patient. Because that's really what this is all about, right? It's not about us feeling like we're doing a good job, although that helps. (laughs) It's about us walking away knowing the patient got the best care they could with whatever factors they came to the table with and whatever resources we had at the hospital and whatever the evidence told us we should do. I agree wholeheartedly that the educators have a powerful influence on the atmosphere that's created that really fosters learning, right? Not only learning for the learner, but even for themselves. And that takes a little bit of humility to recognize that you don't always know and just say it. Look, I don't know everything. I mean, I've been through a lot of training. I don't know everything. and I have no problem saying that. And I think it creates that safe environment where you don't feel the super amount of intimidation that sometimes hampers the desire to learn. And uh, from a learner's perspective, I would say that you should then turn around and ask the educators, why are you telling me that we should do this? Or where did you get that from? Help me understand, because that wasn't the thing that just came to my mind. Help me connect the dots. Or, or what evidence is that? now? Again, that creates a little anxiety because if the educator themselves don't know that, they may also start feeling this disconnect for themselves as to, gosh, I don't know this and I really should. And now I'm getting frustrated because I'm looking like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm supposed to be the person in charge. But again, that's where you as the educator creates that safe environment, just like Dr. Regan was saying, and you acknowledge the fact that you don't know everything and we're going to learn together for the benefit of our patient while you're here also getting training. And I'm going to share with you practical, real things that I also do know. And if we don't know the answer, we're going to go look it up. We're going to go, uh, you know, pull from some resources, okay? One of the things that we also are trying to do, and I think that residents, you know, can do, is when you're reading material or you're doing a journal club or, or you're learning something, jot that down and don't just assume that because somebody told it to you, that it's true. Now, I know that almost sounds like you have a cynical perspective on everything. But unfortunately, there are sometimes things that we do that aren't, really isn't based on anything. And when you realize that, it's maybe okay. It may still be the right thing to do because that's the best way to do it. But at least you then you know. But it takes an effort by the learner to also be inquisitive to want to connect dots for themselves. So that requires self-reflection, figuring out where is my own hole, right? Where's the lack of connection that I have? The other thing that I would say is find some resources. There's a lot of good tools out there, right? And sometimes there's so many that it feels very overwhelming. Where do I get good, reputable information? And that's difficult because there are so many good resources out there. But find a few where you know that this resource provides me this kind of information, this resource provides me this kind of information, and having access, because you can't memorize and know every detail. 
You don't need to. You need to know how to find the information when you need it and do it efficiently and effectively to apply it to your patient scenario or your own learning and your own education. Those are amazing pearls and tips and definitely is going to change my own practice in terms of when I go on to my next shift and when I work with medical students in terms of why I really do practice a certain way. And thank you. I do want to take the time to thank you both, Dr. Reagan and Dr. Bustai, for taking the time to talk to our listeners and informing us of these wonderful practice-changing tips. And thank you so much again for your wisdom and your time. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And I hope you tune into the next podcast. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students. 